Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. This week's episode comes from a highly transformative conference I attended a little while back in Vail, Colorado. It's called 212. 212 was started by Adam Bornstein and his brother Jordan. I was pointed to them by who else but Tim Ferriss. And anybody Tim points me to, I go to meet. Especially if I can meet them in Vail and go mountain biking. The name of this conference is symbolic. The concept behind 212 is to lift businesses to their boiling point. As you might have already figured out, 212 is the temperature in Fahrenheit degrees where water begins to boil. A single degree can make the difference between boiling and not boiling. As that great quote by S.L. Parker goes, at 211 degrees, water is hot. At 212 degrees, it boils. And with boiling water comes steam. And with steam, you can power a train. Finding that last degree between 211 and 212 is what this conference is all about. This was the conference's third year, and it's highly selective. 8,000 entrepreneurs apply for 65 spots, but it's even more selective than that because 30 alums can get invited back. So that means there are only 35 spots open to 8,000 applicants. Some of the applicants come with ideas they have to start a business. Others are already in business and are working their way through obstacles in order to get their companies to the boiling point. It's an eclectic and highly accomplished field. Check this out. The combined revenue that the businesses in the room generated last year was almost three quarters of a billion bucks. People running these businesses came from around the world to sit with mentors like Frank Blake, former CEO at Home Depot and current chairman of the board at Delta Airlines to solve problems and find that boiling point. And would you believe it? I was one of the mentors. So was Ryan Holiday, author of the best-selling book, The Obstacle is the Way, which is a look at how the ancient Stoics can be applied to one's daily life. I'd never done this kind of mentoring before, and I certainly don't grace the boardrooms like Frank Blake, so I was curious as to how it all worked. Early on, I was placed in a session with Ryan Holiday so I was able to observe how he mentored some of the entrepreneurs. Now, I knew Ryan as a best-selling author. I knew he also founded a creative agency called Brass Check that advises clients like Google and best-selling authors like Tony Robbins. It's one thing to know that. It's another to watch Ryan at work. Ryan was able to listen to someone and immediately grasp exactly where their business was at and then guide them to where they needed to go, often with only a single question. It was, as I described in the conversation that you're about to hear, like looking at a straight white line down the center of the road that says, follow me. I became very curious as to how Ryan refined this skill. How did he manage to master the creative side of writing a book 
and also the business side of positioning a book and selling it. It's not common for anyone to excel at one side of this rare coin. And usually, when people excel at one side, they're not very good at the other. But to excel at both sides simultaneously? Now that astonished me. And that's what my conversation with Ryan Holiday is about. How he managed to become the full house. If you're good at one thing, but struggling with the work that comes on the other side of the coin, this is a great conversation to listen in on. It will give you insight and maybe even a little hope. Even if you only recognize that what you need is to find a partner to take your talents to that boiling point. We're going to get to Ryan in a second, but first I'd like to ask for a little help. I'm trying to lift my own small business to its boiling point. That's going to take some work. My original deal for this podcast is concluded, and I'm now a free agent. I got to make decisions on which way to move forward. I may bring in some new advertisers. I also noticed that Tim Ferriss asked his listeners if they thought it would be wise for him to shift from an ad-based model to a Patreon-based model where his listeners make monthly contributions for the content and get other benefits and perks. And this has me curious. So I'm asking everyone to go to a survey at calfussman.com backslash survey and take it so I can see who you are and what might appeal to you. Never done anything remotely like this before. As you probably know, for decades, I've always been the interviewer and writer, never been on the other side of the coin, but now I have to understand what you like and what you want. So thanks in advance for filling out that survey. You don't have to worry about any of your opinions or information being passed on. I wouldn't even know how to do that if I tried. It's simply to let me know who you are and what you're thinking. So thanks. This is a whole new kind of journey for me, and I appreciate your guidance. In a sense, you're mentoring me. And speaking of mentors, let's get straight to Ryan Holiday. So we're here at 212 yes. conference in Vail, Colorado. Mm-hmm. It's my first time. Yours? I It's not my first time in Vail. And then I went to the first 212, which was two years ago. I didn't go last year, but I, I've been before. Were you a mentor? I was, yeah. It's a very interesting format. Like the idea of talking for six hours instead of a one 30-minute or 40-minute talk. But it, it's actually... I, I, better in some ways because you have a real connection with people. What I was impressed about was we did a session together Mm -hmm. and you've got all these entrepreneurs. They've come in with ideas. Some of them aren't even really ideas. Yeah. And I'm watching you in, in that big chair and you're taking all these ideas in and you are able to focus people in a finger snap. And I'm thinking, man, like this guy's a writer and you have the gift of 
taking material and focusing in a book, but you are able to so quickly listen to somebody and say, nope, you got to take it right here. It's like looking at a white line in the middle of a road. And I said, whoa, where did that come from? It, it is a little unusual. You know, writers tend to typically be very good at expressing their own ideas and not other ideas. My path was a little unusual. So I, I wanted to be a writer or or maybe I didn't, I wanted to be around writers. Like I, I want, I didn't necessarily know I could be a writer, but I, I had this idea that I really liked writing in books. Um, and so uh, when I was in college, I just started emailing different writers that I liked. But the only way I could really contribute was as from the marketing side. This was sort of right when blogs were being invented and social media was coming up. This is like, you know, 2005, 2006, 2007. And so my first, the sort of the first authors that I worked for, my first sort of uh, connection with the writing industry was sort of translating books, which I loved, into internet, the internet, the world of the internet and social media, which I was just figuring out because that was sort of my generation of stuff. And so- but this I, makes perfect sense. Yeah. You were taking the large and reducing it yes. to something that was completely understandable yeah. in and, a small space. And and so so I have a marketing background and a writing background, which is usually, those are usually very uh, either mutually exclusive skills or just very, there's not a lot of people who are interested in both. Like, most writers like hate that side of things, uh, which I totally understand. But but I have some fluency in it, and so it like I I worked with authors uh, on their books and on their projects for almost five years before my first book came out, and so that was a, just a different. So I I came from the marketing world first, and then into books, rather than I wrote a book and now I have to figure out how to sell it. That must be so helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's 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 helpful, but then it's also. Um, I mean, I, I'm the split for me is always how much time should I spend on one or the other? Like, so I have a business that works with authors and brands, and it, like, and I'm always really stimulated and fascinated by the work. It's less fulfilling than working on my own stuff. So it's always a balance of you know, there's there's more sort of immediate money right here and working for other people. And then, you know, there's an opportunity cost in working for myself, that sort of thing. So when I look at your website, there's you in front of a bookshelf. It, it looks like it's floor to ceiling. Yeah. And your arms are spread wide. You're in the corner of this shelf. And it's almost like a general with all of his soldiers behind him. <laughs> Do you feel like that? Uh, like a general? No. no. Uh, but I do, I mean, I just really do love books. That that's uh, that photo's in my office. And I mean, they're just Ikea bookshelves, but it goes on, it goes, you know, two walls and then around a corner. Um, and that was the first house that I ever bought. And so the idea of like, I'm going to have a place for all my books, like I've moved around a lot. And so that was the first time I could put them all in one place. And I just really, like, I just... Yeah, those are, that's, I'm, I'm very self-taught. I dropped out of college. And so that's just all my stuff. That's okay, all let, my let's, stuff. Let's take it back to okay. the beginning. Cause I, I really want to understand 
where this love of books came in and then how you were able to go on this journey where you, you were able to learn to focus a book before you actually wrote a book yeah, and, and how you're using that now to help other people. Because I, I saw you helping all these entrepreneurs who you could tell they were struggling with their ideas. Yeah. And you were able in one second say, maybe you ought to look at it this way. Yeah. And you can almost see either one of two things, either the person feeling, oh shit, I'm in trouble because he's identified I'm lost or else, thank you. Right. So let, let's take this back. Okay. You're from Sacramento? Yes, beautiful Sacramento. Well, Sacramento is really a town of suburbs. So I, I lived uh, in a town called Fair Oaks and then uh, a town called Granite Bay. But uh, it, Sacramento is sort of like Los Angeles. Like nobody lives in Los Angeles. You live in some neighborhood of Los Angeles. Did you grow up reading? I, I did. You know, my grandmother was a reading teacher or like a reading specialist, but I actually... I actually remember not liking her particularly. Like I didn't like going over to her house because she would always make us read. So I, I had like, I didn't particularly like reading. Uh, and then I read a lot growing up, like in elementary school and middle school, but I didn't like read good things. Like I read, I would read adult books. Like I would read, like I read every Clive Cussler book and every Tom Clancy. Like I read adult books, but my parents because of their background were never like, have you thought of reading Thucydides? Or, you know, like my parents never directed me to anything like classic or even sort of contemporary good, what we would consider good literature. So I just read a lot and I got pretty fast at it. And it wasn't until maybe the end of high school, the beginning of college that I feel like I was ever, someone ever pointed me in a, you know, like here are the best books ever written. You should read all these. That's I, when it started. I heard an anecdote when you were in fourth grade. Yes. Mrs. Whitaker's class. Yeah, where did you hear that? I got my sources. Okay, yeah. <laughs> where she caught you reading something yeah. that you weren't supposed to be paying attention to. Yeah, I remember the very specific book. I was reading Flint by Louis L'Amour, uh, which I bought at a used bookstore in uh, Sacramento. And... Uh, yeah, that, that was something I would do. I would just read in class because it was more interesting than class. But again, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't reading a great book. I was reading just some trashy Western. So not she, that Louis Lemoore is not a, a bad writer, but it's just a, you know, it's a, it's like a dime store novel. And uh, she catches you. She caught me. And then when she realized what I was reading, she was just sort of blown. She was not mad anymore because a fourth grader shouldn't be reading of, not shouldn't be, uh, is not typically able to read, you know, a 300-page Western, you know, or whatever it was. So you you obviously have this great feeling for books, Mm -hmm. whether they were something that you'd find on a shelf dog-eared and uh, or something somebody might pick up. Like I remember I read all the Hardy Boys and then we were on vacation. My sister had Nancy Drew books. So I read all the Nancy Drew books and then I read all the Babysitter's Clubs. Like I would just read anything. Like the idea of being a discerning reader never occurred to me. So I read a lot of crappy stuff. Okay, then you go to college. Yeah. And what happens when you go into college? Are you still reading Louis L'Amour books? No, no. I, 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 I I think I'd been directed towards better books at that point. But- 
Yeah, yeah. Like I read Hunter S. Thompson, and I read Robert Greene, and I read uh, Saul Alinsky, and I just started reading. Like what I started to do, I don't remember what kicked it off, but I read a good book, and then I just started picking my next book from inside that book. So you know, I would pick. You know, I read the Forty Eight Laws of Power, and he's talking about Saul Alinsky. Uh, and I would read Solinsky, and and so, so this has become a chain of knowledge. Yeah, and and so the I wasn't I had no idea who these people were, and and you know this is uh, I think one of the lucky things about my generation is that you know Amazon was there to give you access to books that you wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. You know, like the idea of the infinite backlist that every book ever published you can just purchase is a somewhat new thing. You know what I mean? I've never had to go to a a library and request some look through a rare catalog. Book. Yeah, and then oh, we don't have that here. We're going to have to send for it. You know, it's like if I wanted a book, I could either get it for free on the internet or I could buy it on Amazon. And so so yeah, when I would find some obscure book in another book, to me is exactly the same as a brand new best-selling novel cuz it was just one click away. And so I would just yeah, I would just read I, I, by reading one thing connected to the other, I just sort of went down all these different rabbit holes. Now you're reading what, like 250 books a year now? Uh, not now, not now. Uh, but certainly in college, I was reading a lot. Like a college in my early 20s, I was just constantly reading. Now I try to be a little bit slower and, and obviously I have more uh, demands on my time. So I'm not reading as much, but yeah. What did all that reading do for you? Did it make you introverted? Did it? Uh... I think I was already introverted, but in, it may have made me more extroverted in that I had stuff to talk about. You know what I mean? Like uh, I would, I would be the person that would have something to say at a dinner. That's not, you know, like, how about the giants? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I just had, st- I had stuff to talk about. Um, well, I read this book on Bill Parcells. Yes. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Right. So I would, and probably, I'm, I'm sure it was incredibly nerdy, the things that I would bring up, but I was just fast. And again, all this stuff was new to me. Like, these were things that I didn't learn in school. Like, a- ancient philosophy, which I write about, I discovered ancient philosophy on my own. I didn't really get introduced to that in college. I mean, I'm, I, I think I read Aristotle in college and maybe Plato, and that was the extent of my you know, philosophical journey. And then I read everything else on my own. Again, because I read a book that referenced this, which referenced this. And then the next thing I know, I'm reading, you know, Herodotus or something. And we've got The Obstacle is the Way right, yep. in, right in front of us here. W- was there a moment where you realized, whoa, if I go back to the fourth century BC, <laughs> I'm really onto something. Uh, no, but, but so I, I went to the, I went to a conference when I was in college. I wrote for the college newspaper and I got invited to this thing that was in LA and it was, it was being put on by Trojan condoms of all, of all things. And Dr. Drew, uh, the, the radio and TV host, he was like the guy doing the conference. And, uh, Afterwards, I remember I, I used to listen to Loveline when I was a kid, and I remembered somebody had called in and said, "You know, you seem like a smart guy, Doctor Drew. What books do you, would you recommend?" And I just loved that question. And so uh, when I saw him, I I told him this, and I said, "You know, what are you reading now? What books should you recommend?" And he turned me on to Stoicism. Uh, 
So again, not a college professor, so some guy who's a radio host uh, <laughs> at a conference told me that I should read. And, and so I went back to my hotel room and I bought Marcus Aurelius. And it came and I remember just reading it and it feeling so modern, but ancient, like, so mo like very accessible, but just somehow more significant and important because it was old, because it had lasted so long. And it just transformed me. It just, it was like, this is what I was looking for. Here's someone talking about how you're supposed to live your life. And I just, I don't think that I'd found that anywhere else. And so I just loved it. And then I went down this rabbit hole of, of ancient philosophy. And what I was mostly struck by is that the ancient stuff was actually really accessible and interesting. And then all of the modern stuff that tried to explain the ancient stuff was really boring and condescending. Oh, man, that is, well, that's why you're the white line down <laughs> yeah. the middle of the road. That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. And and now I'm understanding the, the genius behind this book because you were able to bring all this wisdom up into modern circumstances. Yeah, well, I, f I felt like, so I would read, you know, I'd, I'd read Seneca or Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus, it was really good. And then I'd read somebody who was writing about the Stoics and they'd be like, you know, they'd be talking and then it'd be really boring. And then they'd be like, and then Marcus said, and that'd be really interesting. And so I was like, how are you, how, like, you're not adding any value here. That's what I really felt. Like, I felt like they weren't helping in any way. And so when I, it, I, I probably read Marcus Aurelius in, 2006 and obstacles away didn't come out until 2014. But um, so it was a long time of just thinking about this. It wasn't all necessarily immediate. But what I did decide to write the book, the idea was, I'm not going to tell you what other people have already told you. You should just go read that. But I could add value by illustrating the ideas in stories. You know, I remember hearing a story about Gabriel Garcia Marquez, okay. who'd been thinking about an idea for a book, which later became 100 Years of Solitude. And to me, it's maybe the best book ever written. And for years, this thing is bubbling in his mind, bubbling in his mind. And then one day, he's, I hope this story is true. <laughs> he's on a vacation with his family and he's driving, families in the car, and the book appears to him. Oh, wow. And he just turned around and went back home and started writing. Did you have like a similar experience? Well, you you have something that I remember. I'm actually going to mention in my speech where you, you talk about one of your best pieces. It took you 10 years to come up with the first line. That's right. And... Uh, for what was interesting about The Obstacles of the Way is that I wrote an article about Stoicism for Tim Ferriss's website in 2009. And it was sort of the thing that kind of introduced Stoic philosophy to Silicon Valley. And I got an email from a very small publisher almost immediately after it came out and said, hey, do you want to write a book about this? I think this would do really well. And so I was maybe like 22 or 23. And so I was like, of course I want to write a book about this. This is my whole dream. And I remember I talked to Robert Green, who who I'd been a research assistant for. I think I still was a research assistant. I said, hey, look, look, I got the call. <laughs> you know, this is it. And he said, I don't think you should do it. What? Uh, yeah, he said, I don't think you're ready. Um, I think uh, you 
every year that you wait, you'll have more life experience. You'll be a better writer. You'll understand the ideas better. I don't, I'm, he's like, I think you should wait. And he, this was obviously very hard to hear, uh, but in retrospect, he was totally right. And the I, obstacle is the way. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I don't, the, so I ended up writing a different book about two or three years later. And then I didn't write the stoicism book until to, it didn't come out until 2014. So there was that element of waiting, but when I did decide to write it, the proposal came together pretty quickly. The publisher bought it, not for a ton of money. They did not think a, a, a book about an obscure school of an ancient philosophy would do particularly well. But I remember I was struggling with writing it. I was working on it. I'd written you know, a couple things in a couple different directions. And I was sitting, I'd gone back to where I went to college. I was just hanging out there. And I was sitting in a Starbucks that I'd used to go to to study. And the sort of form of the book started to come together for me there. And then I was back in New York City, maybe a month later, and I was running up along the East River. And the idea for the intro just magically came to me. I don't know where it came from. But the, the, the you know, you, I think what you do is you, you think and you think and you think and you work about it and you work on it. And then oftentimes, when you've stopped thinking about it, and you've gone into something else, it all sort of coalesces magically together. You know, a lot of times I talk to creative people and they describe having ideas in the shower. Yeah. Where you're completely relaxed. Maybe there's hot water coming down on you. And it just seems to be somewhat the case. So when I'm not traveling, almost every day I run or swim sometime in the late afternoon, like three to maybe five, starting at one of those times. And I would say I've probably written or had more important breakthroughs on my work from either that run or that swim than I have. Like when I sit down to write in the morning, that's more workmanlike, but the inspiration or like, oh, that's how I solve that problem. That often comes from during that exercise time, which is why I sort of schedule it in the day. And I don't, I don't consider exercise like this thing that I do to be healthy. I, I mean, I consider it that, but I also consider it like a, an important work thing. When you get done with the exercise, do you immediately go to write your ideas down or is it just in your head and, okay, I got this? So sometimes I'll have so many ideas that I'll lose a lot of them, like in re-entry, so to speak. But it's not uncommon for me to come, like sort of burst into my house and yell to my wife, like, nobody talk to me, nobody say anything until I can get this down in some way, whether it's emailing it to myself or writing it down on a piece of paper or a note card or just going straight to the document and, and putting it there. It's like, yeah, you have these ideas while you're in orbit and then you've got to find some way to not lose them as you're re-entering the atmosphere. It's a terrifying thought to lose a thought. Yes, although I find that they're not lost. It just goes back into the swirl <laughs> and then you find it again because... Now, the pieces fit, but now they've become unconnected, and then they'll just come back connected. So I've, I've like had a thought on a run, lost it, been upset, and then magically it came back to me as well at a different later time. As you're talking, I have this image of um, Bernie Taupin, the guy who wrote the lyrics for Elton John's mm -hmm. songs, uh, and he described to me driving in England back to where he lived, which was kind of like the Idaho of England. So he's, yeah. he's out there in the middle of nowhere. His parents are waiting. And he comes, he hears the words to what 
later everybody knows is the song Rocket Man. Yeah. It's 9 a.m. pre-flight. And the, the words are coming to him. And so he reaches over to the uh, glove compartment. No, no right. pen. <laughs> no pad. Yeah. He's got no recorder. And he's got like hours before he gets there. And he's just like repeating this over and over again until he pulls up in the driveway. His parents hear the car. They come running out. And he just ran right past them to get it down. Do you know John Tesh, the uh, composer? And I don't know him personally, but... There, there, yeah, there's a story about him where uh, he had the idea for Round Ball Rock, which is the theme for uh, you know the NBA on NBC. And he, he just had it, and he, um, he, he has the tape still. We called his own phone number and hummed what became like an orchestra piece to himself over his thing. And you know this thing got, went on to make millions of dollars. But you can hear this thing that you've heard on television, you know, hundreds of times. You just hear this guy who has almost no background in music whatsoever humming this song to himself. <laughs> oh, so that, I think what what you know, there's this idea of artists being very egotistical and and sort of the, the great genius. And I think the more you work on it, the more you have relatively small amount to do with it. There's some, thi- I don't like believe in the supernatural or anything, but there is, it is humbling to realize that it wasn't you that made this. It just came from somewhere. You know what I mean? You plucked it from somewhere that was not you, even if it was you. And you realize that, I don't know, it's just humbling to realize that this isn't like some conscious thing that I can just do on demand. There's a magic to it. Well, it makes me feel like there's a little Mozart in all of us. Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, I think the marketing stuff that we were talking about earlier, the refining and the improving and the packaging and the positioning and the releasing of the idea, that's all much more sort of craftsman-like and is a skill you can learn and you have to whatever. But the inspiration and the 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 the, the magic of it is, is, yeah, something that we are either blessed with or we have to put ourselves in a position to access and pull from something beyond us or, or whatever. So there's like a, you know, there's, there's like a nitty gritty to it. And then there's also a sort of a, a mysticalness to it. Do you feel better at one side or the other? What I used to say is that the marketing and sort of working on other people's projects is stimulating to me and working on my own stuff is fulfilling, but not not fully stimulating. So I need both. Like if I only did my own work, I would be somewhat bored and uh, not challenged enough. And then uh, if I only did other people's work, I would feel empty and it wouldn't be meaningful. So it's a wow. ba- it's a balance. Man, you are like a rare <laughs> creature to have both these sides because the the thing about it is, from what I'm understanding. Like if you're a writer and you don't have the other side, you're helpless. Like you need somebody to do that for you. Writers, for the most part, I think don't understand. They think that like they have this idea and they go into themselves and they pull out their guts and they put it on a piece of paper and it's theirs. Yeah. And then it, it goes into a book into the covers, and you realize that it's about 15% of what actually makes up that book. You, you take it through the process, and there's editors and proofreaders, and not to mention the people who are chopping down the trees to make the paper. 
Well, and also just that it's a commercial enterprise, you know, uh, and and that, uh, you know, Mark Maron talks about how he only realized like later in his career that you have to like make people money to be able to do what you want. And uh, that people, I think art, you, there's a selfishness to art, right? It's your sort of create individual creative fulfillment. But it's really, really the, the sweet spot is like, here's all the things that I'm interested in. And then here's the, in, the here's the things that uh, other people are interested in. And then the, the, where they overlap, where people are willing to pay money for the things that you're interested in. That's, that's how you make a living, right? And I think people, you know, people will go off in their cave and make this thing that's very meaningful to them. And then they'll be resentful that other people don't want to buy it, you know? And it's like, well, unless there's a hundred thousand of you out there, that's going to have trouble working as a commercial product. So, what was the obstacle? Is the way able to teach you about that? Because I wouldn't think that most people are walking around thinking, you know, I could really use a tome on stoicism. Well, that that was something I thought about. That was the hardest part to crack. Is is that I am very interested in ancient philosophy, and I could nerd out about it all day. But when I looked at the market, the other people had written about it and they had not sold well. And so what I took from that is that people are not interested in philosophy. And in fact, if I, like I, I, I said in the Daily Stoke, it's hard to find a phrase that is more immediately unappealing than Stoic philosophy, right? Like Stoic <laughs> means has no emotions. Philosophy means like, you know, intellectual masturbation to most people. So if you're like, I wanna write a book about Stoic philosophy, they're like, no thanks, right? And so, and yet, this book was passed around the locker room of the New England Patriots, Seattle Seahawks. Yeah, no, it's worked. But, but what I, the, I think the reason that it's worked, and I guess this is all guesswork, but I realized that, pe so people are not interested in philosophy. But I think it's undeniable that philosophy can solve problems for people. So, I, what I tried to write a book about was how to solve problems that used the tools or the toolkit of philosophy. So it's funny that this book is associated with Stoicism because I think the word Stoicism appears maybe like three times in the whole book. I do quote a handful of the Stoics and it's definitely based on and rooted in Stoic philosophy. But like there's a, and a footnote in like the third or fourth page, it says, this is not a book about Stoicism. If you're interested in Stoicism, there's a list of books at the back. This is a book about solving problems. And so, again, what you have to think about is like where you're, what you're interested in, what other people are interested in, and then what they're interested in paying for. You know, at, now I'm, I'm just seeing that white line down the middle of the road. Everybody has a problem to yes, solve. Yes, yes. And, and if philosophy can solve it for them, they're more than happy to use that philosophy. But they don't, they don't wake up in the morning and go, today's the day that I'm going to explore ancient philosophy where very few do, right? And so so to me, the heavy lifting on the book was threading that needle. Uh, and this is instructive probably for any, not only any writer, but probably musician, artist, probably somebody starting a business. Because if you can't find that sweet spot that people need or are interested in, what chance have you got? 
Yeah, I mean, look, there's a little less magic in it in that you're sort of being calculating, right? You're not just sort of doing what you feel inspired to do. You're thinking about it. But, you know, I wrote a book after The Obstacles Away called Ego is the Enemy. And, you know, originally I wanted to write a book about humility. I think humility is really important and sort of sorely lacking in today's world. But as I explored it and thought about it, I realized that it was kind of boring and that there wasn't the material, like, all the stories of humble people are very similar, right? So like there's a quietness to humility, there's an, an, uh, an introspectiveness to humility, but it doesn't make for particularly compelling literature. And so what I realized is that I still wanted to say the same thing and I still wanted to teach people the same lessons, but that it was actually better to write a book against ego than for humility. Uh, so you went from North Pole to South Pole. Yes, but it's still the same book. But right. it was the it's how it's like what's my way into this topic and and what is the form that my argument or my writing is going to take. And deciding to write against ego gave me a whole array of people and ideas and lessons to teach that were much more diverse and interesting. And, and dramatic. And, and dramatic, right. Because, you know, humble people sort of- Are not dramatic people. Right, they're, they're opting out of the things where an egotistical person is trying and failing and blowing up and we can analyze lessons and, you know, the, it, it was just, but it's, again, it's the same book, but the packaging immediately becomes much more compelling. And do you consider yourself a calculating person? Because I, I'm watching you in those sessions, and you you don't seem to be calculating. You you just seem to be sort of guiding to this sweet spot. Yeah, um, I, I don't consider myself to be calculating. I guess I'm I'm just saying that it's. I mean, to me, it's very intuitive. I I, I have a sort of intuitive sort of sense for what's going to be the most compelling way. But I guess my my point is that instead of just doing whatever your first inspiration is. I'm like, I often, the writing is sort of the last phase in the process for me. I solve all the other, pro I think about it, I'm working on it and I'm, I'm, I'm doing all that work first. And I think most people make the mistake of is they, they write something or they create something or they start a podcast or a business and they get it most of the way done. And then they're going like, okay, now that I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, how am I going to market this? How am I going to tell people about it? What is it? You know, and I, th I think that's the wrong order. I found this out. We were talking uh, before uh, when it took me 10 years to write a, a magazine story. Yeah. Uh, after I'd been the sommelier at Windows in the World, atop the World Trade Center. And I was the sommelier right before the planes came in. And so how do you write a story about joy and, and wine uh, against the backdrop sure. of this tragedy? And I just kept doing what you said. I just kept trying and trying, and it was just smashing my head against the wall. It was so painful. Yeah. And after that, I never will go to a keyboard unless I know what I want to say. I, I, I don't guess anymore. I, I saw or I listened to a podcast with Sebastian Younger, and he was saying that writer's block is just a result of you not having done your research. And I, I more or less agree with that, too. Like, like I don't sit down and try to figure out where this is going to go. I, that's 
like all that is researched and done and organized and then sitting down is just stringing it together. It's like, you don't, if you're building a house, you're not just like, you don't just grab a piece of wood and a hammer and you're like, well, where am I stuck? You know, it's all, it's all step by step and it's, it's all planned. And, and this gets back to this conference and you're, we're watching these entrepreneurs come in and you can literally see people walking in with the wood ready yeah. to hit a, a nail into it. And it, it's, it's almost uncomfortable yeah, I mean, there there was the woman, and, and I won't talk too much specifically about what she was doing because I, 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 it's a very common thing, but she had this idea, this sort of grand vision for what she wanted to accomplish, but she had no entry point into it. Like, she couldn't say what the first thing she was actually, like, she, she could describe it intellectually, the idea what impact she wanted her idea to have. But she couldn't say if it was a book or if it was a nonprofit or if it was a conference or if it was, you know, a network of of people working together. Like it, it could have been any of those things or all of those things or none of those things. And so it, it was nothing. You know what I mean? And that's what I was trying, I was just Even pushing. Even though it may be a great idea, it was nothing. Yeah, you just have to pick, you have to pick something. You know what I mean? Like the sentence I'm going to talk about in my talk today is this idea of like, this is a blank that does blank for blank. You know, this is a book that helps entrepreneurs solve their problem. Or, you know, this is a book about ancient philosophy for entrepreneurs. That's how I might describe uh, the obstacles way, right? So if you can complete those blanks, yes. you have something. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and if you can't, it's you better you better yeah. wait until you can. Yes, yes, I think so. And and look, I mean, there's obviously exceptions to all these rules, but I think generally, it's interesting to me. People will have something that they've finished, and I'll be like, "Tell me about it," and they'll start, and then like two or three minutes later, I'll realize they don't even know what they have. Oh. You know, and and it's just because it's been so personal to them. And they're so deep in it that they can't, they just can't step back and go, you know, this is a startup that teaches people to drive or, you know, whatever it is. They just can't, they're, they're like, this is an app and then we have this and then what I really want to do is this. And it's like, it's all about them, really. And that's a hard selling point to other people. Does ancient philosophy help us focus because... Like, number one, we're only hearing the best stories. It, it wouldn't have survived yes. unless it was epic. If it was fatally flawed in some way, it would have probably lapsed into irrelevance. It's cheating in some ways to write a book uh, like The Obstacles to Way because I'm not having to come up with anything new. I'm taking a bunch of very timeless, tried and true ideas, and then I'm just communicating them in a compelling way. I'm not I'm not inventing the idea of of sort of separating, you know, perception from reality or or, you know, uh, doing a a, a pre-mortem rather than a post-mortem. These are ideas that have existed for hundreds of years, thousands of years. And so yeah, there there's a survivorship bias to ancient philosophy that's very powerful. And I think we should take advantage of it. And then it's also, I mean, what I think is so interesting is like a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, you had these smart people just sort of trying to come up with these ideas based on their experiences, based on what they could observe. And now we've had thousands of years to either disprove or prove those ideas. So, you know, Epicurus and the Stoics had these sort of complicated like ideas about physics, 
we don't talk about that because they've mostly been disproven. So it's just sort of edited out. But the more practical exercises for living, those have worked. And it, it's interesting that you can pick up the obstacle is the way and literally think about any problem you're having in your business and it's solved thousands of years ago. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to think like there really are no new problems. I mean, there's, uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius talks about, uh, you know, what do you do when you're distracted by breaking news? You know, he's not talking about <laughs> CNN. Right. He's just talking about like the rumor mill in Rome um, or, or, you know, the, the reports from the battlefield. But it's the same thing, you know, um, and Seneca is talking about, you know, the temptations of wealth. You know, he's not talking about an entrepreneur who makes millions of dollars. He's talking about if the emperor gives you millions of dollars. But again, it's the same thing. It's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. They're, they were dealing with all the same problems that we're dealing with now and the plague, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and a bunch of other stuff, right? Like it, it's exactly the same. It's just actually easier now. You know, I'm sitting here wondering how my life would have been different if when I was in middle school, back then it was junior high school, literature or books had been translated to us yeah. this way, where our, the world in front of us, we could then see through thousands of years of wisdom it is interesting because I'll get an email or, uh, you know, social media posts where people go like, how do I, how do I teach this, you know, ancient philosophy? How do I teach stoicism to my like nine-year-old or my middle schooler or whatever? If you go back even a hundred or 200 years, it's like, you know, Thomas Jefferson was probably reading the Stokes in French as a 10-year-old. You know, like we used to, these are the things that you used to be taught in school. You would have to memorize the Stoics or Seneca was fam is famous as an epigrammist. And so you would have to memorize Seneca in Latin at, at 10. And so it is interesting that we think like, oh, these ideas are too complicated for young people when for most of human history, this was all that there was. You know, John Stuart Mill would read like the Odyssey in, in ancient Greek as like a five-year-old. Oh, so, and I mean, obviously he's a genius, oh. but, but my point is that education used to be much more classically driven and much more rigorous in some senses. I mean, obviously they weren't learning a lot of the stuff that we learn now, but but I I, th I think it would be you know we used to, uh, it, it's interesting like you know the story about George Washington chopping down the cherry tree like we now you learn that story for them to tell you that it's not true right like they tell you that, that how how dumb people were that they used to believe that right, right? but actually that that's a very interesting the story is not true but it has a very clear moral basis it's a moral lesson. When you read old textbooks, like if you get a textbook from the 1800s, it's mostly stories like that. You know, it's stories from ancient literature or history that are designed to teach a moral lesson in some way or, or to teach you about the dangers of hubris. Or, yeah, exactly. And, you know, now we learn how to memorize facts to then perform on a standardized test. And then we wonder why society is lacking, you know, a moral basis or why people are, are fall for fallacious arguments and things like that. I, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a, 
a, diver, a path we took educationally that I, I think is a mistake. When, when you look at a book, can you foresee a day in the future where a book with covers will not exist just because of what we're seeing on the, on the internet? The, the example I like is, you know, when you watch like a science fiction movie or TV show or whatever, stuff that, you know, from even a long time ago that's now like about today, you know, they walk into a room, this door wouldn't be a door, it would be like some magical contraption or, you know, it checks your eyes or right. you type in this code. Um, but now you go in, but still doors are just like, you know, it's a piece of wood with a handle and maybe a lock because the technology is pretty good. Like the technology of a door is good enough, right? And I think books are actually a really great piece of technology. Physical book sales are, I think the one, I was just reading, uh, physical books are like the one physical retail product that is showing a growth in sales right now. So, you know, we had this rise of eBooks and a lot of people fell in love with their Kindle and they used it, but now they're kind of returning to physical books in some ways. Why? So, be, because it's it's a good enough tech it's a good enough the piece door of is technology. Good enough. Yeah, you go into you show up at the airport and you realize you have a long flight and you just buy a book there. You know what I mean? And then you have it and maybe you give it away or you um, you know you sell it or what? You, it's good enough. And and I think a book is just a really great piece of technology. So look, I, I think certainly the percentage of people who are reading is in a you know a, an alarming state of decline. It's easier to watch a YouTube video than it is to read a book. But I think the idea of a book in more or less the same form is now thousands of years old. I, I, I just don't I, don't, I don't see that going away. But I think creators or writers have to be more agnostic as to the medium that their content is being consumed. So if I'm able to talk someone through the ideas of this book on this podcast and it has an impact on their life, that's it's part of the chain. Yeah. yeah, that's part of the chain. Yeah, right. And so the idea that a book used to be the only way that you could consume a big idea, that is going away. But you know what? I, I think you, you reference how Stoicism started. Yeah. And it's with uh, like Zeno, right? Yeah. He, he has this terrible shipwreck mm -hmm. and he walks into a, a, a bookstore. His, his, his life, he's down in the dumps. Yeah. And he hears somebody reciting a book about Socrates. Yeah. And that transforms his life. So it wasn't even, he didn't even pick up the book. Sure. Well, and what's, what's, uh, what's also interesting though, is that stoicism is then he, uh, stoa means porch. And so Zeno's porch is where this philosophical school begins. It's a, a teacher and a bunch of students sitting on a porch talking about big ideas uh, and how to live. I mean, we could go downstairs and do that right now. So the technology of a porch hasn't changed. A porch is good. You know what I mean? Like, as long as humans are humans, there is some, um, when you boil these things down to their their essence, it's like, okay, people sitting around, someone needing to consume an idea. I, I, I don't know. I think, I, think, uh, I think there's a timelessness to it. You have a connection with people and books because I can go on your website and see that like thousands of people yeah. are curious. Can you recommend, recommend a book to me? Yeah. Uh, does that like give you just a huge sense of community, which allows you to maintain your focus? 
Well, one of the things that as I was sort of starting out just writing online is that I knew I maybe wanted to do books in the future, but I didn't know what they would be or when that, when that would be. And so I just thought, like, when I thought about the people who had recommended books that had changed my life, I thought about how powerful that connection between us was. Like, Dr. Drew and I are now friends, but like, even if I never met him again, he would be someone I would think about on a regular basis because he told me about a book that changed my life. And so I think one of the things I sort of incorporated into what I did was just recommending really great books to people, knowing that that would be a meaningful connection. And I get emails all the time from people. I got an email as I was walking up here from a 16-year-old in Australia who'd read Marcus Aurelius because I'd recommended it. And he was like, I, I read your books much later, but I heard that first and you changed my life because you told me to read this person. And so I'm just paying that for forward. But it's it's also a very, now we're bonded forever because of that exchange. There's something in that story about the power of connection that I'm really trying to get a grip around. And even with this podcast, like I, I can now look at analytics and see there are people in Mongolia who yeah. are going to listen to this. And the, the connection is so, like, to listen to someone talk for an hour or two hours or 10 hours, if you listen to that many episodes, that's such a deep bond. You really share, like, I have people who I'm very close friends with that I've probably never spent 10 consecutive hours with. Do you know what I mean? Like, our, our connection is much more, we saw each other for 20 minutes, we talked on the phone for an hour, we send emails, we have coffee every once in a while. But, you know, I've probably spent more time with Mark Marin than I have with some of my friends. Whoa. <laughs> it's weird, but that's the power of, and I mean, it's also true with books, right? You know. So is this a natural progression of following the chain, just the same way you were following the chain in, in the books? I'm following the chain. I met Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss said, Cal, start a podcast. Yeah. I, I said, Tim, I'm, I'm scared of doing these art. Cal, start a podcast. Right, right. And, and now we're talking. Yeah. And you're taking me somewhere else because I'm like trying to think about how I can do exactly what you just did for as many people yeah. as I possibly could, which I never thought about before. Well, and look, I think the podcasts that don't work are when someone's like, oh, everyone's doing a podcast. I should do a podcast. But when someone's like, hey, <clears throat> the mission of this podcast is X, right? This is a blank that does blank for blank. The, what, I, like, what I would think about for you is like, what, what are you, what's driving you to do the podcast? Like, what are you hoping to? And I think a lot of people don't have that intention, right? And so this is not particularly meaningful. It, it, this, it, this is wild. You know, I, I was with Melanie Whelan, the CEO of SoulCycle, mm -hmm. and we were, she was explaining business to me because I said, well, now I, like, I got a yeah. podcast. Now yeah. I'm in business. Yeah. What, what do I do? <coughs> I don't know. Right. And she says, well, you have to know who your customers are. Right. So I said, I have no idea yeah. where they are. She said, you have to know what time they're listening. Yeah. You have to know why they're listening. And then she, she pointed out that, uh, she said, do you know who my competitor is? My biggest competitor? I said, no idea. She said, Netflix. Right. Netflix? 
Well, think about it. If somebody's sitting on a couch watching something great, they're not going to Soul Cycle right. to get on a bike. No, authors think that they're competing with other authors. You're competing with people not reading, right? You're competing with unlimited high definition free pornography, right? Like un any you're competing with everything else but reading. And so that's why one of the I started this email list where I just recommend books because um People who read books are, by definition, more likely to read my books than people who don't read books. And so, yeah, it's it's finding out sort of wh where your customers are and what they have in common and where you can provide value for them and not thinking about competition because the competition is... Uh, or uh, Cory Doctorow had this great line where he said that, um, you know, the enemy of a creative is not piracy, it's obscurity. <laughs> and and that, you know, we're all fighting for a little bit of attention. And your competition is, is again, not the other people similar to you. The competition is just nobody. Uh, the, the thing you should be worried about that should be keeping you up at night is just nobody caring. Apathy. Yeah. Well, I'm going to winnow this the whole conversation okay. down. Uh, to like where the chain goes for me, because I'm taking everything okay. that you're saying. And in order to find out who was listening, what am I going to do? And so I ask people to just, if you're listening to the podcast, please just send me a photo of the city or town yeah. where you're at. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a photo of you. I just right. want to see where you're at. <clears throat> and people like start sending in these photos. Yeah. In figuring out, filling your blanks. Yeah. I'm somebody who traveled around the world for 10 years without a home. I woke up every day not knowing where I was going, who I was going to meet. And when these photos come in, it brings me back yeah. to that moment of like pure curiosity. Sure. Waking up in the morning, what's going to happen? Yeah. And I love getting those photos. Sure. Is there any way to translate that to what you've done, creating this community of people who love books and are now reaching out to you to say, hey, what, what should I read next? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I wonder for you, maybe you're like, I'm always thinking about like what's different, right? How do I make my thing different <clears throat> than, than everything else that's out there? And so maybe part of it, if, if this idea of being sort of somewhat nomadic and uh, all over the place. Maybe you're. Maybe you do live shows, right? Maybe you. Maybe yours is really a community that's on the road or something. I don't know. Well, this is something. Like, or the fact that we're even doing this in a hotel room. Like I didn't. I didn't come to you. You didn't come to me. We're meeting in a third place. It, where we're, you know, maybe that's part of your your thing is that you're sort of traveling around and you're having unique or different experiences that and that that makes the show distinct and unique and it also connects into the fact that your readers are, or your listeners are in Mongolia and Kansas and Canada and Australia. You, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for this because I one of the things from this conference that I pulled away when I was mentoring people, because I, I saw people with problems where they couldn't express it. Yeah. And so basically my point was, boil it down to three words. Give yeah. me three words. Right, right. And I said, wow, I'm asking all these people to do it for themselves. Cal, you better do it for yourself. Right, right. And, and I, I just started writing down three words. And one of them was coming your way. Ooh, right. So you're coming to me. 
That's right. <clears throat> I like that. Well, I like that. I now have the stamp of approval. I like it a lot. I am ready to go. Yeah, I like it. Thank you. You, I, I'm telling you, I, I'm looking at you, and I just have never seen anybody like you. You have a gift. I don't know. I, I know a little of where it comes from now, but this is really deep. Well, that's very kind. And I, I mean, I, but I would say, like you said, there's no one like me. There's no one like you or like anyone. And I think one of the problems that we we do is that instead of leaning into that, we become, we see like, oh, somebody is like this. So I'm going to become more like Cal. So I'm going to get a hat and I'm going to get the shirts and that, because that's working. So I'm going to do that. But it, it's, it, it's a no, what is, what's your thing? You know, what's unique about you? Don't like, don't make a list of recommending books. Like I already, I already <laughs> picked, <laughs> not, not I, like I already picked the low hanging fruit, right. you know? So, but there's something at like, Somebody could have done that with podcasts. Somebody could have done that with what, you know, like pick, be, I think, you know, Peter Thiel talks about go where you can have a monopoly, right? And the only thing you can have a monopoly on really is like yourself, like, is you're the only one that's like you. But then the first thing we do is throw that away. You know what? I have tried not to throw it away my whole life, but you have put the white line in front of me. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I hope this is the first of many of these conversations. I hope so, too. Cheers. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss once again for pushing me to start this podcast. I'm more grateful with every conversation it brings me. And I'd like to remind you to please go to calfussman.com backslash survey to answer a few questions that will help me figure out how to take this podcast to the next level. I'm very grateful that you've come along on the journey. Every week, more and more people enter this community from around the world. One day, I hope to clink glasses with each and every one of you. Cheers. Cheers.